So this text is one of the more well-known texts in our Bible, but it's interesting. The first seven verses of Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, is one sentence. You get Not in our English Bible, but in the original language, it was one sentence. It was almost like Paul got so excited that he couldn't stop writing and finish the sentence. Um, it's like a junior high girl just got finished watching Frozen. I don't know. But they get home, they're like, da 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 That's what Paul is like in this moment. He is so excited to write these first seven verses. And the gist of it is this. We, are, we were dead, but God has made us alive in Christ. That's the message this morning. And it's the message of our entire Bible. It's what Jesus preached, that there was this massive problem but God has unleashed an incredible solution. Because here's the deal. Everybody, you and me, we can all agree that something's wrong with the world. Like the fact that the Cowboys didn't make the playoffs, right? Like, like we all know there was something wrong with the world. We turn on social media, we look at the news, especially with what's been going on lately, is that we can see something's not right. Like surely this isn't what the world was supposed to be. This isn't how I was supposed to to be that we can all agree that something's wrong, right? And when humanity looks around, we all go, yes, we're all in agreement, this is not okay. Something is off. This is why we have New Year's resolutions. So how many of you made a New Year's resolution? Raise your hand. Yeah, a lot of you, right? Most of you. If you didn't actually make a resolution, you have some kind of plan for something you want to do differently this year. New Year's resolutions are evidence that something's wrong because you're not who you want to be, right? You want to be something else. You want to do something more um, than you did last year. You want to do something less than you did last year. Like you say, man, I really want to get into shape. So you get really excited. You go on a 12-day cleanse. You go to the gym three times a day, and then you're done after two weeks, right? Or you say, I want to get my finances in order. I want to give more. I want to save more. Um, I don't want to go out to eat 24 hours I mean, seven days a week, all the time. I need to get a handle on these things. Or you might say, I want to be a better friend, or a better mom, or a better dad, or a better brother or sister, or a better student. But you can go through the list of things that you want to do because you know that you're not who you want to be. We always want something else. So we can all agree that something's off. Now, where we start disagreeing is when we ask the question, well, what's the problem? And how bad is the problem. We all know something's wrong, but if you go to different circles, people will stop agreeing when you ask for solutions and when you ask how bad it really is, that some will say it's education. We just need to educate our young people more. If they knew what we knew, or if we knew what, what they don't know, like, like if we could equip them, then everything will be fixed. Or if we just had a better economy, right? If we could just um, in poverty, poverty, we wouldn't see so much hate and disgust between people. Or we might say it's a race issue. If we could just sift out racism, then we could get rid, get rid of all the ugly and hate in the world. And here's the reality. Those are good solutions. But you have to look at the bigger picture. Because the reality is the magnitude of the solution is directly proportionate to the magnitude of the problem. They have to be equal. If I get a cut, which is a problem... What do I need? I just need a bandage. If I get the flu, I need some like sleep and some prescription meds and a whole bunch of other things. 
If I get cancer, then I might need surgery. I need to get chemo. But if I'm dead, then what do I need? I need an equally powerful solution. I need a miracle is what I need. So the magnitude of the solution is directly proportionate to the magnitude of the problem. So how bad are we? Well, if I need to lose some weight, I go to a gym. If I need some encouragement, I'll ask Katie for it, right? If, if I am dead, then something big needs to happen. I need a miracle. And here's the deal. We are really quick to self-diagnose and like get our opinions out there as quickly as possible. Um, we are not the best people to diagnose the problem. Uh, I had a friend, he actually works um, at a church in Belton, and I saw him on a Wednesday, and the next day I called him, and he's like, hey, and I'm like, where are you? He's like, oh, I'm in the hospital. I almost died. I was like, what? And I said, what happened? And he said, well, my chest started hurting, and I just felt like I had some heartburn, and so I just kind of like took some, you know, medicine. I don't remember what he took, but he just said, I'll just wait, and it'll get better. Well, it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. He had some kind of heart arrhythmia or something. I don't know the full story. But basically, he almost died because he waited and waited and waited to go to the hospital. And so we do this all the time. We misdiagnose the problem, and we get it wrong, and we just make things worse. And here's the deal. We need to look at the Bible's assessment of the problem, the Bible's assessment of us. And if we look at that assessment of humanity from Scripture, we will see that the problem is actually much worse than we think. The stain of sin goes deeper than we could ever imagine. But here's the rest of the story. The solution is better and greater than we would dare to even dream. This is the story of Christ. And so in verse 1 it says, You were dead in the trespasses and the trespasses and Sins. The Bible's explanation for why we are the way that we are is not that we were just confused or a little misguided. No, it says you were dead. Out of all the words that Paul could have used here, he chose the word dead, <laughs> the most extreme word that you could use. And I, I can imagine that there are many of us in here who have had an experience with death of some sort. Maybe you've seen someone die or you've seen a dead body. I would imagine that most of us in here have been to a funeral, maybe even with an open casket. And so we've got some kind of experience of seeing a corpse. I know for me, my closest experience uh, with death was when my mom died. Uh, she was, we had a call that she had a stroke. And so Katie and I went down to South Texas. We went to the hospital. She was there for about four days. And I remember you could just kind of slowly see it coming. And then on the last day, on the fourth day, you know, it wasn't one of those scenes in a TV show where, like, everyone runs in and there's beeping and all kinds of stuff. It was just kind of a silent, terrifying moment. When I walked over to her bed and her eyes were open and she was stiff and there was no response in her. And the only word I could think about, like, as I remember that, and I imagine for some of you who have experienced something similar, it's, it's a very disturbing moment. Um, it's, not, it's not how it should be. And so we all have our different experiences with death. And I remember walking out to the hallway and going to the nurses and going, I think she's gone. It's very disturbing. And, and Katie and I had to deal with this reality that this is finality. Like, this is the, this is, like, there's no hope here. 
This is the final moment for her. And it's, it's a very weird feeling. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of Charles Spurgeon. He was a pastor in London a long time ago. And he was preaching this text um, to his congregation. And he said this, and it's one of the most interesting paragraphs that I've ever read. Um, he said this to his congregation as he was talking about the idea of death in Ephesians 2. He said, the thought is overwhelming that soon this body of mine must be a carnival for worms. <laughs> that in and out of these places where my eyes are glistening, foul things, the offspring of loathsomeness shall crawl, that this body must be stretched in still, cold, abject, passive death, must then become a noxious, nauseous thing, cast out even by those that love me, who will say, bury my dead out of my sight. He says, perhaps you can scarcely in the moment I can afford you appropriate the idea to yourselves. Does it not seem a strange thing that you who have walked to this place this morning shall be carried out to your graves? That the eyes with which you now behold me shall soon be glazed in everlasting darkness. That the tongues which now just moved in song shall be silent lumps of clay and that your strong and stalwart frame now standing in this place will be unable to move a muscle and become a loathsome thing. The brother of the worm and the sister of corruption. And then he goes on and he says, Now endeavor with me as well as you can to get the idea of a dead corpse. And when you have done so, please understand that that is the metaphor employed in my text to set forth the condition of your soul by nature. That when the Bible is trying to explain who we are apart from Christ, the only explanation it can give us is Death, the wages of sin is death. That we are so far from what God has intended us to be that the only word it can grab to describe who we are to us is dead. That we are dead in our trespasses and sins. To trespass means to go somewhere that you were never meant to go. To sin is to do something or be something that you were never meant to do. That we are so far from what God has intended us to be, from what a woman is supposed to be, from what a man it's supposed to be that when the Bible searches for language to explain it to us, it uses the word dead. <laughs> the most disturbing word that we can talk about. That's how it explains it. So the images that come with that are cold, lifeless, a corpse. <laughs> so don't be mistaken. It's not just that we're confused or misguided. I, I, when I was in college, um, I was at a youth camp, and I heard the pastor of the youth camp explain it to my students like this. They said, you know, when it's talking about dead, it's, it's kind of like you're in one room, and Jesus is in the other room, and all you got to do is just get up, walk to the door, open the door, and then you're alive because you're in the same room as Christ. And I thought about that, and I'm like, no, <laughs> that's not what it says. A dead person can't walk. You can't get up to open the door. He's got to come to you. And it drove me crazy. Probably like some of the things I'm saying to you is driving you crazy. Um, but um, when it uses the word Ted, we have to take a step back and go, okay, that's not good. And it goes on. It says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you walked. That at one time we were all apart 
from Christ. And there are some of you in here in, in a crowd this size that I would imagine, and you're here maybe because you're with your family or, or because you, you, know, you thought it, you wanted to check it out, but I would imagine there are some of us in here who wouldn't say that you're a Christian. Or maybe you're, you're in the middle and you're doubting and you haven't surrendered your life to Christ. You don't see him as better than anything else. What this is saying is that you are literally a dead person walking. You are physically dead. I mean, you are physically alive, but you are spiritually dead without eternal hope. And so if you're here, and, you, and that sounds harsh if you're not a Christian, but I want you to hear it, that a life without intimacy with your creator is a dead life. You have completely missed the purpose of your existence. It is a dead life. He goes on and he says, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sun's of disobedience, that Paul lays out two streams for us in this text. Right? That there are two threads existing in the world. The first one is a movement of the world that follows a crafty and deceiving power that leads to eternal separation from God. This thread thrives on oppression, despair, um, apathy, and concern for self. It's the work of the power of the prince in the air, that there is an active character in the world leading you astray, convincing you to believe things about God that aren't true, that he's not good, that he's not better than anything else, that he doesn't have your best interests at heart. There is an active character in the world convincing you that he's not worthy of worship. And it's powerful physically alive, but separated from a loving, kind, and generous God. And he says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. It's, it's interesting here that Paul just, when he explains why we're dead or how we're dead, he doesn't say, well, you just made some bad decisions. Right? It's a misguided decision. You had a moment of weakness. It's okay. You rejected God, but that's okay. No, no, no. Our natural desire is to run from God. It's to fulfill the passions of our flesh, which has a natural bend away from the Lord. And in verse 3, Paul says that because of that, you are by nature children of wrath. That here's the reality. God hates sin, and he will judge it. The word for wrath here is the word used for flaring nostrils. I don't know if you knew that. So next time you're just angry, just take a selfie, and you'll see wrath, right? And then send it to me, so I can laugh. Um, but it's the word for flaring nostrils, that the scripture says in this text, that if we are apart from Christ, we are the object of God's anger based on our sin. And it's interesting, if you look at modern Christianity, so if you go... I guess Lifeway's closed now. If you go to Amazon and go to the Christian section, um, or if you, you just go to a bookstore and you look in the Christian section, um, or if you go to a podcast or something, in modern Christianity, there has been a movement for the last several years to move away, talking, away from talking about wrath, the wrath of God, or hell. It's not something you hear talked about on a Sunday morning or in small groups 
or you read, would read in a book. Um, it's just not a popular thing to talk about. This movement started about 40 years ago. I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase fire and brimstone. Some old Baptist preacher, some fire and brimstone preacher, right? Um, but that was very popular. It started back in the Puritan area, and there was a turn about 40 or so years ago where that was just kind of sifted out. And now the conversation is more about the love of God, which is good. But we talk about only the love of God. And no matter what you've done, no matter what you're doing right now, you can go sin and do whatever you want. God's going to love you. And while that's true, we have to understand that God's grace is so good because he has given us mercy from wrath and from judgment. And so we don't really talk about hell anymore. Um, I don't know if in English class, or maybe you've heard it somewhere else, I love church history. Um, I'm a nerd. Um, And so I don't know if you've ever heard of the sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God by Jonathan Edwards. It's one of the most famous sermons in all of church history. It kind of launched the Great Awakening. Um, And he said this to his congregation. And so just be thankful that I don't preach and Matthew doesn't preach like this. So let's give some appreciation up front. Um, But here's what he said to his congregation, talking about hell and the wrath of God. He said, The bow of God's wrath is bent, and the arrow made ready on the string, and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow, and is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Thus, all you that have never passed under a great change of heart by the mighty power of the Spirit of God upon your souls, all you that were never born again and made new creatures and raised from the dead uh, in sin to a state of new and before altogether unexplained light and life are in the hands of an angry God. And as Edwards preached this, members of the audience started crying out, what do I need to do to be saved? Or they would sit in their seat and they would yell, I'm going to hell. Uh, people started coming up to, in front of the pulpit and started begging him to stop preaching because of what he was doing to the people. Uh, and he had to yell across the crowd, said, be quiet, let me finish. And so he continued, he, he talked about people being dangled over hell like a spider. <laughs> um, it's, it's just a crazy sermon. I encourage you, go read it. It's fascinating. Um, but he told them about the dangers of hell, that fire and brimstone idea, that there is judgment. And the service got so out of control that they had to stop it. And he said that I will never preach that sermon again. Now, why do I tell you that story? Because if we are truly going to understand the grace of God, then we have to understand the wrath of God. We have to understand what salvation gives us. Because judgment will come. And some of you might say, okay, if God hates sin and he's going to judge it and we are children of his wrath by nature, then what hope do we have? You just telling this to make me sad? No. The reality is that at the end of the day, yes, he will judge your sin. He will judge the sin that you've done. He will judge the sin that has been done to you. All sin will be punished. You have to know that. All sin will be punished. But the difference is, the difference 
is that when Jesus died on the cross, hear me, when Jesus died on the cross, he took that judgment and put it on himself. So if you're a believer and you've sinned, which is every single one of us, that sin will be judged. But if you're in Christ, that sin is just judged by Jesus giving his life on the cross. It's called grace. It was out of the kindness of Jesus that he would take the judgment on himself so that we could be free and made new, that God hates sin so much that it has to be judged, and he would judge it by his son. And he loves us so much that he would send his son to the cross and place all the judgment on us. That in the cross, we see perfect love and perfect justice. That all sin will be judged, but also all of you are perfectly loved. Because that judgment did not come on you, but it came on a perfect Savior who has shown you grace. It's the love of God in the person of Christ, one who would take our sin and shame and receive from God his wrath and judgment. All right, so you might say, cool story, Colton. Good job. But this is for them, right? Like, like I know I'm not a perfect person, but I'm pretty good, you know? Like, I pay my taxes. I give to the church. I was nice to you this morning, right? So you, so you might say, I'm not a perfect person, but I'm pretty good. So really, you wouldn't say this to me, but you might think it, right? Or, not, or pay attention less because you think it's for someone else. Well, here's the deal. Here's the deal. In the Gospels, we get three different occasions where Jesus raised someone from the dead. I don't know if you knew that. So three different moments where Jesus raised someone from the dead. The first one was Jairus' daughter, okay? Um, she had been dead only a few minutes, and Jesus walks in, brings her back to life. The second was a young man that had died just the day before. There was a funeral procession. Jesus <laughs> comes along and shuts down the funeral, um, and he raises this guy back to life. The third person was Lazarus. Lazarus had been dead for several days, and Jesus shows up and says, hey, open up the tomb. Now, in each of these occasions, in each of these occasions, the corruption, corruption of death, so the corruption on their bodies would have look different, right? The little girl would have still had some color to her. Her body may have been worn. She may not, would not have looked that much dead, but she was still, in fact, dead. The young man who had been dead a day may have been stiff, cold. He would have looked lifeless. Lazarus would have been very corrupted, right? So much so that when Jesus tells him to open the tomb, Lazarus' sister says, no, 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 don't open it. He's going to stink because she knows that he's been dead for several days. Now, here's the deal. Although they may have been in different stages of death, were they each dead? Yeah. Although they had different levels of corruption, evidence that they were dead, they were still each dead. Equally dead, equally needing a miracle. And so here's the deal. Don't you say, well, they need to hear this. I don't need to hear this as I'm, I'm not that bad because if the wages of sin is death and all of humanity has sinned, then we each, apart from Christ, are dead. They 
just may look a little different, and you may smell a little nicer, but make no mistake, you are still dead. And then the other side of that is you might say, well, the corruption's all over me. You don't know what I've done. I try to hide it, but you can still see it. And I got to tell you, you know, when Lazarus came out of that tomb, or when when Lazarus' sister said, don't open it up, because he's going to stink, Jesus didn't say, you know what, you're right. He is going to stink, and we don't need to be, we don't have to have that near us, right? And what did he do? He said, Lazarus, come on out. It doesn't matter the corruption. It doesn't matter how dead you are, how much the corruption shows, there is grace for each of us. There is grace for each person. That's all of our stories. That Jesus has stepped into our lives and did something that was beyond our abilities, that each of us he brought from death to life. And that's why at the beginning of verse 4, you have the two most important words, I think, in all of Scripture. <coughs> Excuse me. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, that even when we were dead, God sent, God sent his son to purchase us from the grasp of death and pulled us into the ownership of himself. That just like Jesus went to, to Jairus' little girl, right, and said, Talitha Kumai, little girl, rise. That many of you, when you were kids, Jesus took your dead soul when you were four, six, eight, ten, and he made you alive just like Jairus' little girl, like just like Jesus stepped up to a funeral, that, a funeral that he's not even associated with. He doesn't even know the guy, but he sees the funeral procession passing by, and he's like, nope, not today. That's not happening today. And in, in Luke seven fourteen, it says that he said to the guy's mom, do not weep. That's incredible. Before he's even raised him up, he says, do not weep. And he says, young man, I say to you, arise. And the guy got up. Jesus is shutting down funerals. (laughs) He's shutting down funerals. And that's why if you're in Christ, every funeral while you grieve is also a celebration because although you may be physically dead, you are eternally alive. That's why Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then he went to Lazarus. And for many of you, that's exactly where you are. The corruption is evident. What does he do? He calls for him. It doesn't matter. (laughs) He's doing the same with you. He is calling for you. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, it's all by grace. He didn't save us because he thought we would be a good bet or a good investment. You might say, well, he won't forgive me. He doesn't know what I've done. No, he knows exactly what you've done. And he still wants you, not because of you, but because of what is in him. He doesn't see something special in you. It's what's in him that makes you special. It's the grace and perfect love that is placed on you as a son and a daughter that raises you up and seats him with him as his own, that you belong to him, that he forgives because of what's in himself. And then it says, and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace 
and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Um, I once heard it put like this. Like, let's say, I gotta find it. Let's say this pin is humanity, okay? Um, let's say this pin is humanity. Now, what's happened is because of the sin in humanity, um, there is power of prince of the air, the desires of our flesh, has placed us in this stream that only leads to death, right? That's the only option for us. And we can't get out of there. We can't pick ourselves out, out of that stream. But what's happened is that Christ has come, he's pulled us out of that stream, and he has placed us in a completely new stream, one that's filled with life and hope. And he's raised us up. And so now wherever Christ goes, we go. And nothing can pull us out of there because we belong to him. That's what this text says, that he will show you immeasurable grace in this stream. Joy, hope, resurrection, peace. Because you don't belong there anymore. You might try to wiggle out, but you can't. He will always keep you there as a son and as a daughter. That's hope. That's joy. That's something worth worshiping. So when he says he's raised us up with him, literally raised us up with him in eternal salvation, eternal worship with him. And then in verse 8 it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. The two words that never should be associated together is arrogant and Christian. They just don't belong to you. They make no sense, right? Arrogant and Christian. The gospel message is that I was dead and God came and got me. There was nothing I did to make him do that. It was out of his kindness and out of his love that he did that. So let me ask you something. When it's all over, when it's all said and done, and you get to heaven, you think you're going to show up and Jesus is going to be like, there you are. You did it, bro. You did it. I had doubts about some of those other people, but you did it. You read your Bible. You went to church. I put a bunch of different religions in you, around you, but you didn't take the bait. No, 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 no. You did it. I knew you would do it. I didn't think that person could do it, but I knew you could, okay? You are awesome. Good job. Do you think that's going to happen? No, that's ridiculous. Why? Because you didn't do it. He did it. He did it. He stooped down and pulled you out of the darkness and brought you to his perfect, bright light. He stooped down and got you. So the only response that we could have is worship. Therefore, we have no room to boast. And you know what that does for us? It really frees us because I don't have to earn anything from you anymore. And you don't have to earn anything from me anymore. It frees me to really love you and to really care for you. And it frees you to really love me and care for me because I don't need anything from you. I have everything I need in Christ who stooped down and got me and made me his. And so it makes us free to love one another. And it makes us free 
to love the world, to make disciples of the world, because we're not trying to earn anything. We've already got everything we could ever want and everything we need. We just need to stop running from it. So it's a gift. So the question I have for you before we move on to the next verse is, are you dead or are you alive? And by asking that, I don't mean, um, do you cuss or do you, do you not cuss? And I don't mean, do you go to church or do you not go to church? Like, are you dead or are you alive? Which stream are you in? Have you continued to reject something that is better than anything else in the world? Or have you run to him and felt the satisfaction that you've never felt before? Are you dead or are you alive? I love verse 10. You know, it says, for we are his workmanship. Um, how many of you know are familiar with the statue of David? Do I know what the statue of David is? Raise your hand. Sweet. So all the adults in the room. Um, cool. Um, oh, I got one kiddo over there. Good job. Uh, <coughs> sorry. So um, I don't know anything about statues, and I am not an artist by far. Um, Katie was doing watercoloring last night. I looked at it and almost ran outside because I was so scared to get near it because I thought I would mess it up without even touching it. Um, but there's one statue that the majority of people know about, and it's the statue of David, okay? I have the top half of him on the screen, not the bottom. I won't say what's on the bottom, but let's, you know, it, when Josh and I pulled it up earlier, we kind of gasped. So, um, so I just put the top half on there uh, just to be safe, you know. Um, but the story of the statue of David, you know, even if you don't know anything about statues or art or whatever, most people know about the statue of David that's in Florence, most famous statue in all the world. People travel from all over to go see the statue. They built a whole building around the statue in Florence so that people could come pay 20 bucks to go see David, right? They wait in line all day. They pay 20 bucks to see David, and then they go spend 20 bucks of a mini statue of David, right? So David's popular. Well, the story goes that the stone that was made out of David was flawed. So there was a little quarry that artists would come and grab their stone that they would make statues out of, and everyone would pass by this stone until who came along? Michelangelo. So Michelangelo came by and said, I'll take this stone. And he made David, the most famous statue in the world. Right Now, if stone could think, do you think David, wait, which hand is this hand? If, if Stone could think, do you think David would stand there as all these people are coming to him and go, look at my glory, right? Look at these muscles. Look at these abs. Yeah, worship me. Take a picture. I've only got one pose. But so do you think David would stand there and bask in his glory? What would you say to David? No, you didn't make you. Someone took, you were flawed and a master put his hands on you and made you what you are. And it would be equally as ridiculous for David the statue to stand there and go, just a flawed stone. No one loves me. No one cares about me. Uh, I'm worthless. I'm useless. I'm not good at anything. All I can do is just stand here, right? Like, it would be equally as weird for him to say that. Why? Because you'd go, you're David. You're the most famous statue in the world, yes, you were flawed, but when the master put his hands on you, he made you something completely different. He transformed you and made you something new. Why do I tell you that? 
what we tend to do as Christians when we get into the mud and the mire of Christianity is we go one of two ways. We say, you know what? I know my Bible. Colton, I've heard this text preached on 20 times, maybe 100, maybe 500. I don't need to hear it again. This text is for them. Like, did you hear the sermon today? What did you think, right? Like, like we just get into this, I know it all. And I'm, we wouldn't say it out loud, but there is a, a mannerism that we carry about us that we're arrogant. And then there's the other side of it that says, I'm always worthless. I'm not good at anything. I'm still sinning. I'm still the worst. No one will ever love me. And we get down into the hole in the pit of misery. And both of them don't work. It doesn't match up with Scripture. One, because the response to the gospel is always in humility. Because you didn't make you. You didn't save you. But you know what it's also not? You're also not always the worst. Because Christ has made you new. And made you worthy. There is a balance of humility and confidence. Humility of, God, thank you for saving me, but also confidence knowing that I'm his and I am made new. That's what this text says. And so if you're like the statue of David, you say, you know what? A master put his hands on me and made me something completely different, and all I can do is worship him. And then it says, um, you know, what's interesting, the good works for us, they come after, not before. See, typically, um, when, you know, we do something, we have to earn it. We have, to, we have to earn the right to do it. But here in this text, the good works come after. Like, you're not saved because of your good works. You can take the, the picture down, by the way. Um, you're not saved because of your good works, but you do good works because you are saved. And what's beautiful about it is we get so stressed out about the things that we're not doing. Like we're not being Christian enough. We're not making enough disciples. We're not doing this. We're not doing this. He says that he's prepared the good works for you. <laughs> like the fruit that your life will produce for the kingdom, he is preparing that. And so stop stressing out and open, walk, wake up each day with open hands saying, okay, spirit, where do you want me to walk today? What, where should I put my money? Where should I put my time? Who should I, what word should I say to these people? That you have an eye for the oppressed, the hurt, the poor. That you show kindness to those who are different than you. That you always point your family, your kids, your husband, your wife, your neighbor. You, in every conversation, you point them to the most worthy one that you could talk about. You point them to Christ. So my hope for you, if you're a believer, after walking through these sin verses, my hope for you is that you would have a deeper affection for what God has done through Christ on the cross. <laughs> Understanding that your sin, yes, is judged, but you weren't judged. Your sin was judged on the cross in Christ. And if you're not a believer in here, I would, one, warn you that the anger of God will judge sin. And that the text says that by nature, you are a child of wrath at this moment. But I would also remind you that if you would surrender, he would stoop down and pull you out of that stream and make you new. And I would also say on the other side of that, 
that yes, there is, you are a child of wrath, but he's also just better than anything else. Like the thing that you're seeking to find that satisfaction, whether it's alcohol or drugs or power or money, it won't work. The only place you will find the satisfaction and joy is in worship of Christ. That is what you are created for. And so stop running from it.